Welcome to the Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast, where you will learn career strategies and techniques to help you break down barriers, make more money, and thrive in your tech life at work and at home. Technology has never been more mission critical to our online stay-at-home world, and you are the key to its success. You'll hear from diverse women in tech as well as experts who share both personal and professional strategies so you can transform your work and your workplace from the inside out. I'm Karen Morstel, former Silicon Valley tech leader and serial CISO for iconic brands like AT&T Wireless, Microsoft, and Russell Investments. I hope you will join me in my mission and message of resilience and transformation to make an inclusive and equitable tech industry. If you find this show helpful, please leave us a like and share it. And don't forget to hurry over to createyourleadingedge.com to join innovative and affordable group coaching for women in tech on your terms. And now on to Mojo Maker for Women in Tech. My guest today grew up in small town Iowa as a biracial first generation Afro-Latina American and has always had a strong passion for inclusion and diversity. As the first family member to attend university, Alicia Jessup learned early on that her path was not only to build a more inclusive community, but to be a light and bridge for other underrepresented people to realize their personal and professional potential. Having served in the education, startup, marketing, and now technical sector with Tech Systems, the nation's leading IT services and staffing firm, she understands the nucleus of how every company thrives by emphasizing their people. With multifaceted experience and moxie, Alicia is here to help companies take a look at their current workforce, realize their talent opportunities, and create plans that impact teams individually and organizationally. Alicia has her degree from the University of Northern Iowa and is founder of the largest women in tech meetup organization based in Denver, Colorado. Join us today to listen in on our recent conversation about the impact of silence, empathy, equity, and inclusion, and why understanding all of this is so necessary and still so hard. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. She's a colleague, a friend, a mentor, a person I love to turn to, to have these conversations about how do we engage with each other when things are tough. My guest today, Alicia Jessup, is a diversity and inclusion manager for Tech Systems. And I'm going to use some of the time during our call today for her to tell you her story in her words. And then we're going to dive in to the hard conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion in the tech workspace. How's that sound to you, Alicia? Oh, that sounds lovely. I just look forward to any time I get the chance to connect with you, Karen. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. Oh, I'm so excited. We're going to have a great conversation. I'm looking forward to it. We didn't script this one, so we don't... Yeah, we're just going to see where this goes, and it's always good. So I'm looking forward to it. So first of all, you... are a diversity and equity and inclusion manager for tech systems. Can you tell people a little bit about the path that brought you to that place? 
Yeah. So I currently am the title is an inclusion and diversity manager and supporting our Northwest, Southwest and Canada. So really everywhere west of Colorado and then Canada. And lately, Karen, I've been getting a lot of questions and inquiries just around what it took to get into this world, into this space. And we're seeing, you know, diversity, inclusion, practitioner roles open up at such a rapid pace across our country. So I'm I'm glad we're spending just a little time here. But, you know, even pre-workforce and pre-me joining in in the sector of of technology, I say my diversity inclusion story starts in my personal background and how I grew up and where I grew up. So I am first generation by way of my mom, Mama Lydia, shout out to her, the, the light of my life. And she was born in Mexico, immigrated to the United States at a, at a young age with my grandma and her brothers. And from there, grew up in California. And then from California, bought herself a one-way bus ticket to connect with who I'm named after, her cousin Alicia, for job opportunities. And from there, you know, is where I was born through my biological father, who is African-American. But my mom married who I consider my dad, and he's a white man. And then four years later, they have my younger brother, who identifies as gay. And so there we were, just this this multi-dynamic family of four living in rural Iowa. There were more cows and people in my hometown. We had one stoplight and I graduated with 47 people in my high school class. And my entire time in Iowa, I just remember, I look back at it now and say that I was just constantly being conditioned to meet people where they're at in themes around DE&I and not really realizing that they were themes of diversity, equity, and inclusion and knowing what inclusion felt like and what inclusion didn't feel like and oftentimes more on the latter or being in spaces where diversity was clearly not very present. And, you know, that led me to my journey in college. I'm also first generation through a university lens and having my first time, you know, it was still in Iowa, but at a college level, seeing more people that looked like me and how exciting that was for somebody, you know, identifying as, as a mixed girl, Mexican and black. And then now I'm in college and I'm grappling with maybe not being, you know, Latina enough for for the Latino kids and then not being black enough for the black kids and jokes cracking like, oh, how do you not know this movie? How do you not know this TV show? And again, not always feeling like I had a great space. And there's a phrase for that, ni de aquí, ni de allá, you know, not from here, not from there. And that really summarizes a lot of my being, but I'm so grateful for it because then I get this chance to join our student government team and work as as a diversity inclusion manager, eventually up to a director for, for our entire student body, undergraduate student body. And I think having that constant conditioning and that constant feeling really allowed me to value multiple perspectives and really engage with diversity of thought first with with human connection, because just from a data point, we didn't have a lot of diversity. So I think that is what attributed and piqued a lot of my interest. Fast forward, I graduate from university and say, all right, I actually just have to get the heck out of Iowa. I'm ready for something different. And using the best logic I had at the time, 
I picked the closest, quote, major city, but with the best weather. And that was West. That was in Denver. And it's only about a nine hour drive. Heaven forbid something happened. I didn't want to be too far away from my family and my roots. But I embark on this journey, not not a huge plan, you know, ahead of me, but this this tenacity and this light that felt that like that was the move that I needed to make. And so I did. And I stumbled into the tech sector. That's it's a longer story, but I haven't looked back since. And getting into the tech sector, I always knew diversity and inclusion was where I wanted to head. We had a team established. I really, really looked up to them. And I made a little commitment to myself when I first joined my organization that I was eventually going to be on that team because I knew that that's where my heart wanted to go just by way of my background and already some of the experience that I had. But what I first witnessed, and that was being the only female of color in my entire office and really less than a handful of us in the entire state of Colorado at my organization. And there was some exhaustion there. And I think for anybody listening that sometimes feels like they're the only one, I am with you. I know too much and too often how that feels, but that was enough of a a carrot for me to say, all right, I want to help drive some of this change. And so my first eight months before I got promoted, I got promoted less than a year. I just remember feeling, wow, if I feel this way, constantly interfacing with, you know, upper middle class, white, cis men, and being so drained at the end of the day, I can only imagine how people who are actually, you know, in the trenches at these tech companies are actually feeling. And so that inspired me to basically have a conversation with with the trusted mentor at the time, Kyvie, and she threw it back at me. She goes, well, it sounds like you've observed a little bit of a problem there. What could you do with that? And so one thing I, I was taught early in my career was that, hey, you know, especially as it relates to this work of diversity and inclusion, you can do the role and the work of building a strategy in the current chair that you're in. So as a recruiter, Eyeing for some DNI work as, as a full time role, but there's nothing stopping me from still leading that strategy and still helping set that foundation. Because to be honest, it should be a collective group that should be everybody's responsibility. So I felt compelled and I took a data driven approach by putting out some surveys, collecting some insight for hey, you know, women in the tech sector who also might be feeling this way, how would you feel about coming together and, you know, just engaging? maybe in a monthly, quarterly group setting, we can play out the logistics later, but just wanted to get some insight. And it was very well received. And that's what launched the Women in Tech Denver meetup that I have since founded. And what was intended truly to be this small little gathering has since evolved to being the largest Women in Tech meetup in Denver, Colorado. And that group meets quarterly with just the goal of building affinity and, you know, educating and establishing relationships for women all along the themes of technology. So that's a little bit of the journey and the roadmap that I took to where I am today. And that's working full time, of course, as an inclusion and diversity practitioner. There's so much in there. One of the things that really jumped out at me is how, you know, life prepared you. It was almost like in some ways, this is your gift and you're given, I guess you could call it your sacred contract. 
that's, you know, we come here with some purpose and it seems that you have found that path relatively early, but painful parts of your childhood and your, and your experience in school and upbringing and well, and your college experience really kind of helped you prepare for this. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, it definitely did. And I think, you know, some of, some of the hardest examples and stories that I've shared, I, I, I look back and, and gratitude now, and that's something that I'm really trying to practice more over just as a person is centering myself in gratitude. That's helped tremendously as I head into this work and meet some of the continued struggles and difficulties and challenges in this space. But yeah, I, I definitely, definitely feel like looking back at my background has shaped me for, for this type of work. And I share that with anybody that you know, has reached out or inquired about taking on continued work like this is that diversity of perspective that we all carry as individuals is the story that we eventually want to hear from one another, right? Like that's where we start to really, really see the beauty. It's just creating that sacred space and that, that beautiful space to allow for that to come out. You, you made a comment First of all, you have this prep that has made you so good at what you do. Not everybody has that. And I think you also said that people can do this from their own chair. They don't have to have a special role. They don't have to have a special title. They can make a difference in making a more inclusive, equitable, and diverse workforce right from where they sit. But that's got some challenges in it, right? Because you wrote, you, you kind of called some of that out. And I want to talk a little bit about that incredible paper that you wrote. And it was a dear white male leaders of any tech organization. The day I saw that go up on LinkedIn, I was just riveted. That was an, an amazing piece of work. Can you talk a little bit about that paper? And then I want to dive into some of the things that you talk about in there so that we can make people feel more comfortable with the idea that they can do this work from the chair they sit in. Yeah. You know, that day I put up your silence is betrayal. And I, that's who I'm writing the letter to, right. Is dear white to any white male leaders of any tech organization. But at, at this point, I'm starting to see it more and more across gender. I, I just put male leaders because that is the dominant group of our technology sector in the United States. I just, I, was starting to feel a little betrayed. My, my heart was starting to hurt and I was getting very frustrated because it was the week that we saw George Floyd be assassinated all over social media. And prior to, I was working so closely with not only our internal leaders, but just externally too. And what I was witnessing across a lot of platforms and engagements with clients. And it was all about COVID and, and quarantine that people were in. And this charge of empathy was just so heightened. I feel like that was the word of the first couple of months of quarantine and COVID that I kept hearing was empathy, empathy here, empathy there. And I loved it. And I thought it was so important because that is such a focal point that I wish we would look for more in our leadership across corporate America, because that again is creating the openness to allow for human connection. And that should be at the essence of every business objective. And so we see 
you know, some of the, these, these racial tensions and these assassinations and, you know, the, the, the lady in Central Park who had, you know, placed the phone call out on Christian Cooper, Amy Cooper. And I, I just was getting angry because what I thought would be met with empathy and concern and care was actual silence. And I just didn't understand because I thought, you know, we had seen so much and so many beautiful moments from leaders across the country and all types of tech companies come together that here we have, you know, a, a different set of huge issues starting to, to pop in and pop out and no one's saying anything. And so I just started to put together, listen, you know, what is it that's making this so hard to approach? And I understand, right? I, we have been so trained and not necessarily, and I think it's even more, the, the, you know, the more tenured you are in this, in this, in corporate America to leave stuff like that outside of our working walls, right? Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about certain things, but now more than ever, we're starting to see that integrate. And it's because if we're saying, Hey, you as an individual, bring your authentic self, bring your whole self, bring your best self, however we're messaging it, we can't then say, well, can you cut out the pieces that, you know, are, are, are the stickiest because it's, it might just be a little too uncomfortable to navigate in the workplace. We can't do that anymore. If we're serious about this new wave of work-life integration, we have to be open to integrating even the toughest aspects that before have made us extremely uncomfortable. You put a couple of things in your article where I just want to highlight those. And if anyone hasn't read this, please go get a copy, download it and read it. Because you kind of call out, and I would say any tech leader, anyone who's holding silence as their preferred strategy, that's who this letter is for. Doesn't matter what their gender might be, right? Yeah, I just at the time I was very, very intentional because that's where I was seeing the bucket of silence oh, come yeah. from. And huh. noting, you know, who currently holds the majority of tech leadership positions. Yeah. Yeah, by far. <laughs> <laughs> by yeah. far. Well, that's a whole nother podcast. But you know, the idea is people will carry energy for the things that they feel like they can carry energy for. And then what I think you're talking about here is the energy just didn't happen. Like there, the and silence was the result. People didn't carry the energy, and didn't engage. And you and I've kind of bounced around a couple of ideas about that and what needed to be done with it. You have some specific suggestions in here, like holding space, which I love. That's one of my favorite words or favorite phrases. But it's so hard for people to do. They don't know how. You find that to be true. I do. And I think, you know, when I say hold space and I, I, maybe you can add to this too, Karen, because as always your insights just continue to help and shape and shift me personally, but it's, I'm not suggesting, and it would be absolutely inappropriate for me to say, absorb the emotions of your people, absorb the feelings of those around you. That is not what I'm asking. But as a leader with the influence, with the authority, with the power, I think it is your responsibility to provide the guardrails in which that space is held for people to flush out and put out those 
authentic feelings, because again, we're preaching, bring your authenticity into the workspace and us to filter to the top what is going to best serve them the organization for us to move forward through our strategy of diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's what I'm saying. And I think that's difficult. And I think that's challenging. And, you know, a part of it is just maybe a miss that we've had in corporate America on really heightening the emotional intelligence over, you know, maybe the technical capacity of, of responsibilities of the higher up in management and the higher up the food chain we go. But it's it's something that we need to we need to start prioritizing now. And I think current leadership has a potential to do so. Yeah. Well, you you say your silence sends a signal of I I put your output above what goes into your input. Right. And essentially, I think what we've done is we've created a workplace that's incredibly transactional and people come into roles in the tech community and elsewhere and they're not necessarily evaluated for that role on the basis of their sheer people skills and handling things like conflict or handling things like emotional trauma. People don't have a, tra- a trauma-aware culture, and we don't have trauma-aware workplaces for sure. And that's starting to change in some areas. Portland, has Portland, Oregon has some really incredible stuff going on there, which I think is worth looking into. But I want to talk about holding space for a second, because you also said another thing that's really important, is that people don't have to take, like holding space means exactly that, hold the container. A container is, is a container not necessarily getting mixed up especially in what's in the container. So if I, maybe an example would be better because so much of what you say reminds me of what of what chaplaincy training programs try to train chaplains to do. And the two things that they really have to train chaplains who self-select into that role, by the way, they're not managers of a tech organization, <laughs> is holding space for all kinds of circumstances. And the second one is empathy. And both of those things in your letter just kind of jumped right out at me as how important those are, those as critical, critical leadership skills, but they're hard. You know, we talk about equity being hard, equity's hard. We don't hold space for one another. In particular, we don't hold angry space. Like we don't hold space for people to express their anger without allowing ourselves to get angry or get triggered or get pulled into it. You know, that holding space just means let that person be there. And yeah, when I, I had a a case, which I won't get into a lot of details, but I had a, a spouse who was, who's, husband, but as I was a chaplain at the VA, her husband was dying. He had always been a take charge kind of guy. This was such a major dis- trauma for her, major disruption for her in her life to be losing that take charge in control part of her life that she became incredibly angry. My first response, which was a very rookie response, was to try to make it better. And that was exactly the wrong thing to do. And my supervisor was the one who really helped me see that. And she goes, you know what? That was like an incredible missed opportunity. You needed to hold space for her. If you can't hold space for her to be angry, who can? 
right? Yes, 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 yes. And sorry for that little background. I just wanted to get the, the, I was trying to think of the best way to take that and, and parlay it into, okay, from a leadership piece, when we're looking at the difference between empathy and sympathy, how can that basically foster out, right? And I love that story because a couple of things, more often than not, you are choosing that route, right? Like you chose to get into that chaplain piece. Oftentimes when we look at our, our tech sectors, leaders are choosing to climb the ladder. For, there's a couple of cases where you just get tapped on the shoulder and you're being asked to go in. Sure. But look, a majority of the time it's, hey, this is this is an objective you have. So that understanding the breakdown of empathy and sympathy is critically important. And I think that's where sometimes a miss is because so often, and I don't know if this is a, just a human thing, and maybe it is truly coming out of a place for care and love, but we want to solve people's problems for them. We want to be able to say, hey, here's the solution. And when, we, when we're talking about very, very hard, long, embedded you know, topics like race and inequity and systemic oppression, you're not going to be able to solve that overnight. And you're probably not going to be able to solve it for other people. But to your comment about that container piece, you can hold the space and put up the parameters for then people to come together and collaborate on what they envision as a brighter future for your institutions. Yeah. Let me... The empathy sympathy thing. I gave a presentation to a room full of professional pastoral care providers. And one of the things that really struck me was how little they understood the difference between sympathy and empathy. The, my favorite, and you know this, my favorite example is Brene Brown, where she talks about Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy drives connection. And here's what's so hard about holding space and empathy, in my opinion. And that is that when we hold that space for another person, number one, there's really no bounds on it. We can't set bounds on it because we automatically, we don't know what the bounds should be. How can we? We have to be able to allow them to have the space to process what they need to process. So that's, first of all, scary because we don't, we're not in control. And the second thing is we want to fix things because empathy requires us to feel the feeling that the other person is experiencing from the depth of our own experience. So if they've got a really painful thing going on, in order for us to empathize, we have to step into that pain. And none of us want to do that. (laughs) We'll we'll try to fix it. And what are we really fixing? We're really fixing our own pain, not the other person's. And so it's never helpful. No, not only is it not always helpful, it's not necessarily productive, right? And I think when I think about empathy, it's being able to understand but you don't necessarily need to share them. And I think that's where some of that just genuine human connection got lost. And maybe where I was getting so hurt, you know, coming into that, that transition of COVID, the, everything being about COVID into everything being about some of the, the racial injustice that we're seeing right now in America and really our world. And I got frustrated with leaders across the board in the tech sector because I am not 
asking you to share them, but I think it's important. And again, your responsibility to be able to understand. And that's where I was really intentional about making some, some business comparisons with that, right? If you are a tech organization and you've got a client that you are serving, you are not, they've got business challenges. You're not going to necessarily always share the same challenges, right? And that's not your responsibility, but your responsibility is to be able to understand their business challenges to then put in proper solutions to fix that. I love what you said in the paper, you know, use your words to drive action and don't just use your words to do what I, you know, I call a spiritual bypass, (laughs) which is like the worst thing ever. When somebody's really comes to you and they are in pain and you say, well, my thoughts are with you. That is such a bypass. And our words matter so, so much. And I think the thing that the theme that we've got going here is being thoughtful and intentional about it is not necessarily going to be easy, but you can use your words to do something productive, actionable that will make a difference. Maybe it will take a little bit of extra training or a little bit of outside help or a little bit of coaching to help that happen. It's not a fault to not know how. It's a fault to not try. Facts, snap, snap, snaps to that. It's that is a big take point that I hope people realize through, you know, the paper, but just moreover in their experience. And everyone should relate to that to some degree, right? Being in situations or scenarios where it's, you know, like the like the the image I've been seeing that's been going viral of the house burning down and the neighbors are on the street just watching it and they're all, man, our thoughts are with that house. That is so sad that it is you know, burning right before our eyes or wow, that just looks vicious. That's we wouldn't do that. So this is another example to how we our words are not going to just suffice. And that was another thing that was really eye-opening to me was the amount of messages I received from people at the beginning of this around just the guilt that they were harboring. And I think that's an important emotion to have. I think that's actually a first step into action. But as we start to be iterative and move forward as a society, as then maybe into organizations, it's now less guilt, more action. I am not really in favor anymore of continued messages from people, especially that I've already connected with, with just constant guilt. That is not a zone to stay in. So it's, all right, how do we set up steps to then drive action? And I think one of the ways in which we can do that, again, really speaking to leaders here is feeling, you know, acknowledging the feelings that your employees have, that your teams have, and letting those feelings then, again, funnel out because not every feeling, you know, quite frankly, is going to help then lead to production in your workspace. But feather out and align what will and how you all can unite and do that together. Yeah. You know, guilt as an emotion is intended to be something to propel us into action to change it. It's pain, right? Pain is like the, hello, something's broken, fix this. (laughs) And it is kind of a, I think there must be some kind of paralysis by fear that 
A, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to find out what to do. And I don't believe that I can make a difference. I think there's a ton of that going on out there. It's, you know, people call that imposter syndrome or whatever that might be named, but lots of doubt that somebody can actually make a difference. And I think what you and I are both really trying to drive home here is you can make this change happen right from your own chair. And if you don't know where to start, let the guilt be the thing that propels you into finding somebody who will help you work out a plan. I love that. And, you know, I I do want to spend some time there, Karen, because I think that is really nuanced for people, especially when it comes to race relations and our work settings around the, the, the white guilt. And just, I would even say the brown and black guilt that then I carry and that I know other people do as well, because they're exhausted then from constantly hearing about white guilt that other colleagues and, and people might project onto them. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth. But overarching theme here is yes, as it relates to setting any stones regarding a diversity inclusion strategy at your company, you can make that transition. You can be the change or steps to, you know, how you best do that. But I hope people really, really walk away with that and with that level of inspiration. And I think, you know, there's not a certain level you need to be at or reach before you can start using your storytelling ability as your own individual. Because again, there is, when we talk about diversity, it's just variety. So bring the variety to the table by sharing, you know, the, the spices and the, the experiences that we all have that make us us and shape us to the table so we can decide, hey, what aligns best with our overall mission as a company, as an office, as a culture, as an employee resource group, and use that to drive change. And especially to my women of color, who often are the most vulnerable in our technology institutions, I want us to eradicate this quote finish line we feel like we need to cross before giving testimony, before sharing our stories, before putting ourselves out there. And I, I don't necessarily feel like it's always fair, but you know, the, the mantra I, I know I shared with you, Karen, around what's been inspiring my 2020 is still, if not you, who? And unfortunately, ladies, that is something I think we really need to lead through is that we will be the pioneers in this. We are currently the pioneers in this. So don't feel like you need to have a chapter all the way written before you engage others and share the little precious milestones and nuggets that you know are shaping you along the way. Yeah. And don't do not underestimate the power of your voice to make a difference. People don't think their message matters. It matters so much. I'm so grateful to the person. Uh, She's a woman of color in tech. I hold in great esteem. And she, it was five little words that she said to me that changed my whole perspective. Five words. Don't ever, don't ever forget that your message, you've got a message and it's going to impact at least one person, if it only one, right? It doesn't have to be the world. It has to be one person at a time. Yeah. I love your, if not you, who that you and I've talked about this, but that quote from Hillel from, gosh, way back in the first century, it's so relative now or relevant now. If I'm not for myself, then who will be for me? And if I am only for myself, then what am I? 
And if not now, when? Boy, that couldn't be more timely. And, you know, that I think about just the first piece, right? If I am not for myself, then who will be for me? And I feel so lucky that that was something Mama Lydia instilled in me at such a young age. Mija, no te dejas. Like, don't let people out here, you know, running all around you and over you. Like, you stand firm. You have a voice. You use it. And having that just strong female empowerment trickled in me at such a young age that I see so important now and especially to women of color and other underrepresented groups and and organizations where it feels so tough and we're feeling so exhausted. We have got to look out for ourselves. And I think, you know, we're also though, again, in this really perplexing dynamic where yes, we need to put up boundaries, but let's make sure we're not putting up walls because we are setting such a great stage and framework that will be a bridge for other women and women of color. And that's that piece of that legacy that I just don't want us to lose sight of. But yeah, I mean, trust that for someone that is outwardly trying to get my message out. And I've been saying, take the mic and pass me the mic. And I we, I need to elevate my voice so I can elevate others. There are so many days where I wake up doubting myself and I wake up feeling a little insecure. Did I say that wrong? Or, you know, am I being articulate? Or am I rambling too much? And am I word styling all over the place? And, you know, a lot of the times, yes, probably, but so what? Somebody else can pick it up and take that and maybe do it better. And that that's the point in all this. This isn't for accolades. This isn't for some type of recognition. It is to leave these systems in which I'm operating in better than how I found them. You know, I'm never, I, I'm going to encourage you, Alicia, never, ever feel like your voice is too much or word salading too much or whatever. Cause remember I'll, that moment at the conference at the Jose conference where you your voice reverberated in the room when and I'll never forget it as long as I live you know you just made that point that says let's not forget equity is hard we have never had a system in this country based on equity and you could have heard a pin drop you know when you go unplugged you're powerful so never ever stop don't stop. You've got so much to say and people need to hear your voice, whether you're writing it and pushing it out on the internet or speaking in your, how is Denver startup week? Have, do you know yet? Is your session going to be? I haven't heard anything back, but I'm, I'm open for good news. (laughs) Okay. I I'm sure it will be good news, but your voice through the women in tech Denver, through the startup week, through podcasts like this, because I know you're doing others, the writing that you're doing. Oh my gosh, Alicia, it is such an honor to know you and to watch you work. So I'm glad you were able to join me today on the show. Thank you. It is always such a pleasure to just connect with you. And, you know, I, I just thank you, Karen, because you are one of those leaders that is so encouraging and so open and heartfelt and allowing and suggesting people share their journey in the process with where they're at. And I think that is so beautiful. And if other leaders could take any little bit, I hope that that was something. And I hope that that is something is that, Hey, 
We are literally trying to do this work as we speak. There is no perfect guidebook for how to create systems that are more equitable that will then in turn create and harvest diversity and then also shape environments where inclusivity can exist. But let's bounce ideas. Let's collaborate. Let's share our wins. Let's share our lows and really, really be stringent and intentional in that when we leave our spaces, we can turn around and say, hey, I shaped it, maybe not as much as I would have liked, but I rounded out some edges that the next person come in and take on and appreciate just a little bit more. Perfect. I can't wait to do this again with you. Let's come back and revisit in a couple of months and see where things are sitting and talk about this some more because I know this is moving very quickly and there's a huge volume. So let's do this again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. See you soon. That's it for today's show. Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast is part of the ecosystem of knowledge sharing and affordable group coaching to help reverse the trend of women leaving tech and to help diverse women in male-dominated industries get the visibility, opportunities, and compensation they deserve. Be sure to check out our five-day challenge by visiting us online at createyourleadingedge.com. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you listen to the show. We'll be back again next week. Be well, stay strong, and remember, be an ally. Be an ally.